Merry Christmas to all of my Christian brothers and sisters out there, and happy holidays to all the libs. Today is the winter solstice and the darkest day of the whole year, just days before Christmas Day. And while we try to be positive and optimistic, yet realistic with everything going on in our country and around the world, one cannot help but notice the, the blinking and flashing symbolism with the Christmas tree at the White House. The national Christmas tree toppled down by high winds. We knew it was gusty out there right? today. Our Amy Cho just got to the scene. Amy, what are you seeing there? What, what's going on? Hey guys, yes, it is such a sad sight to see. Certainly not the most ideal way to kick off the holiday season, but there it is, the White House Christmas tree lying toppled over on its side, brought down by a gust of wind, according to the National Park Service. Uh, we can confirm it is very cold and windy out here right now. Uh, you can see a crane over top of the tree, and there's also the stage set up to the, the left of it there. That is because the National Tree Lighting Ceremony was scheduled for Thursday evening. Now, I just got a statement from the National Park Service that says they are currently evaluating the tree. As the saying goes, quote, the show must go on and the National Park Service and our event partners are looking at all possibilities to ensure a successful event this year. We will provide updates when they become available. I know so many people were looking forward to that special annual event. Uh, this tree uh, has been hand decorated, I understand, by ornaments representing all 50 states made Aww. by children from those states. And this follows a string of bad luck as as far as White House Christmas trees, uh, the one that was planted two years ago had to be cut down just a few weeks ago because it had developed some type of fungal disease. Oh uh, so certainly not a good time to be a White House Christmas tree. Uh, <laughs> but there you have it. It's lying on its side. Uh, and we will give you updates as soon as we hear anything more from the National Park Service. Is God trying to say something? I'm, I'm not sure. But I, I do know that the natural wind toppling over the Christmas tree at the location of our you know, our nation's most powerful establishment and the, and the home of our leader, the president of the United States, is probably one of the most ind indicative signs I I've seen this year. I'm Blake Watson, and this is We the Free. We just launched a merch store on WeTheFreeShow.com. Just in time for the holiday season, there are several shirts like the classic We The Free crest tee and others like the Salt and Light shirt, the God Bless America shirt, and a special one just for you, the freebie shirt. There are even some quality coffee mugs with similar designs, a We The Free logo sticker, and a Smells Like Freedom candle. Yep, you heard that right. So head on over to wethefreeshow.com and find yourself a gift for a, a loved one to make this Christmas season a little freer. Well, I've missed you guys and gals over the last two weeks, but we're here today for one final episode of the year, so we're going to make sure it's a good one. We're going to talk uh, a, a lot about Christmas and, and cover lots of news that we've missed in the last couple weeks, but I wanted to, to begin by acknowledging the passing of one of the freebies. Her name is Mary Wilson. She passed away earlier this month. Um, she and her husband James were early supporters of the show, so today's episode is dedicated to Mary. Now, let's get started. In the early Christian church, the first celebrations related to what we now know as Christmas probably began with events like a celebration of the Magi visiting the infant Jesus, called the Epiphany, which is, is still celebrated today on January 6th. But celebrations of the birth of Christ would soon follow. The word itself, Christmas, held its, its first form as Christismas, which literally means Christ's Mass. So if you're Catholic, that's totally familiar terminology to you. If not, a Mass is like a service or a liturgy denoting the celebration of the Eucharist or Holy Communion. In other words, Christmas was initially a special liturgy or like a church service with a special attention on the Incarnation. The in Incarnation, of course, being the occasion of God coming as an infant human. In other words, the observance of Christmas has been around for many centuries, 
Yet, all this time later, here we are in, in 2023, the world has changed considerably. Uh, there's a lot of things about Christmas that are often misinterpreted and, and misrepresented. So in our special segment on Christmas, let's talk about what I think are the top 10 most incredible truths of the Incarnation. We're going to start with the seemingly secular and work our way into the text of the Gospels. And parents, nothing to worry about here. There's no spoilers of any kind. We're just talking history and some sociology. So without further ado, let's start with number 10. Are Christmas trees a secular or pagan ritual, and do the origins really matter? So first of all, the use of evergreen trees has been associated with pagan festivals and winter celebrations long before Christianity. And that's simply because evergreen trees were symbolic of life and fertility because of their evergreenness, the fact that they persist in their liveliness and their vibrancy throughout the entire year, but especially through the winter season. For example, the Romans would use evergreen branches in, in the decorations of and, and the celebration of Saturnalia, an extended time of, of celebration and worship and thanksgiving to the Greco-Roman god Saturn, the god of the harvest. Uh, and this happened in late December, around the time of the winter solstice, so close to today, December 21st. The usage of evergreen or fir trees in this act of pagan worship was more so in using the branches, not necessarily the entire tree. However, they, they would uh, decorate their pagan temples with, with whole evergreen trees. But the original Christian use of the evergreen tree and, and decorating the tree for Christmas, which distinguishes it, I think, from the, the pagan practices, is debated between Catholics and Protestants. Prior to the Reformation, or the Rebellion, depending on your denomination, church history shows us that the Christmas tree has its origins in Germany, all the way back in, in the 12th century, the, the, the medieval period, or the late Middle Ages. The church in Germany was celebrating a feast on December 24th in recognition of the first humans, Adam and Eve, who they recognized as saints with a play of sorts called the Paradise Play. This medieval mystery play depicted the story of Adam and Eve. It showed their creation, their sin, their, their banishment from paradise. The play even ended with a preview of the Incarnation. And one of the only props used in the performance was a large evergreen tree, which was called the Paradise Tree, which was, it was decorated with red apples, and candles, kind of like lights on the tree. Not quite a Christmas tree yet, but its decoration and its connection with Christianity and its proximity to December 25th are all very likely explanations for the origins of the Christmas tree. The Catholics also believe these paradise trees worked their ways into people's homes as they also honored the first people. These were apparently fir trees that were decorated with apples that were symbolic of Adam and Eve's sin, even though there's no way of knowing what the fruit was. Um, the trees were decorated with Eucharistic wafers, uh, the, the Eucharist representing the, the body and blood of Christ. Paul speaks of Adam being uh, the first Adam and Jesus being the last Adam in, in 1 Corinthians. So you can see how this observance led to the festive tree becoming the Christmas tree. In fact, German literature from the 15th century in 1419 shows us the first mention of the Christmas tree. Another document from Germany in 1605 states, uh, at Christmas they set up fir trees in the parlors at Strasbourg and, and hang thereon roses cut of many colored paper and apples and wafers and gold foil and sweets. Now, Protestants have a different story, and it has to do with the, <laughs> the catalyst of the Protestant Reformation, the man himself, Martin Luther. The story goes that he was walking through the woods at night when he was looking at the stars through the trees, and seeing these stars through the trees inspired him 
to recreate the imagery at home for his family. So he cuts down a smaller fir tree, he brings it inside and decorates it with candles to simulate the stars because Jesus is the light of the world. There's also another strange Catholic origin story that dates even further back to the 8th century. An English missionary to Germany, St. Boniface, allegedly stumbled upon pagans worshiping around an oak tree, uh, their worship being directed towards the Norse god Thor. No, not, not Chris Hemsworth. Well, Boniface, in an act of, I guess, rebuke, chops the tree down. Now, they expected Thor to strike St. Boniface dead, but instead, Boniface, being a missionary, he evangelizes them and used an evergreen tree as an illustration of God's everlasting love. And the legend says that these people would return to this tree each year, decorating it as a commemoration of their conversion. But God knows what the truth is. Around the 19th century, people were using fruit as as tree decorations. And once again, in Germany, around 1880, some glassmakers there started making these glass decorative balls and, and bells to replace the real apples, becoming the first ornaments as we know today. A few decades earlier, though, the Christmas tree was widely popularized in Europe by Queen Victoria. The rest is, as they say, history. So while the involvement of evergreen trees and pagan worship is is undeniable, it's also undeniable that the, the decorative tree in the family home is a Christian tradition dating back centuries ago. Next on the list is number nine. What is the significance of the candy cane? It's generally believed that the candy cane dates all the way back to the 17th century, and once again, possibly another Christmas tradition that was created in Germany. Some historians note the first use of the candy cane was when a choir director at the Cologne Cathedral in Germany used them to help keep children quiet during Mass. And it being Christ's Mass, or Christmas, the sugar sticks were being shaped like a shepherd's crook or a staff in reference to the nativity and those shepherds who came to visit the newborn baby Jesus. Many throughout the last couple centuries have explained uh, the candy cane's J shape to represent Jesus' name and, and the red and white symbolizing the stripes and suffering of Christ. In other words, the candy cane is a very Christian candy indeed. That brings us to number eight now, and that is the legend of Santa Claus. We now have a growing number of parents, especially here in the States, who practically demonize the entire idea of Santa Claus and reject the inclusion of the jolly Saint Nicholas and their Christmas celebrations. Now, I understand this to an extent, but allow me to tell you the real history of Santa Claus. First and foremost, Santa is not an anagram for Satan. <laughs> and, and I think that um, that just began with someone probably mistyping something after too much eggnog. I don't know. But the name Santa Claus is derived from the Dutch name for St. Nicholas, who we'll talk more about in just a second. The Dutch name for St. Nicholas is Sinterklaas, which is a contraction of St. Nicholas, St. Nicholas. Um, The Dutch settlers brought this tradition with them to the United States, where it evolved into the figure that we now know as Santa Claus. The transformation of Sinterklaas into Santa Claus is thought to have occurred gradually over time as the St. Nicholas tradition blended with other influences in American culture, like the image of Santa Claus as a jolly, rotund man with a white beard, a red suit, and a sleigh pulled by reindeer became more standardized in the 19th century, particularly through the influence of illustrations and poems and stories like Twas the Night Before Christmas by Clement Clark Moore. That poem was also known as A Visit from St. Nicholas, and that was published in 1823. Another key figure in uh, popularizing the the modern image of Santa Claus was the political cartoonist 
Thomas Nast. Nast's illustrations for Harper's Weekly in the 1860s and 1870s depicted Santa Claus, as we recognize him today, residing at the North Pole, checking a list of children's behavior, and delivering gifts with the help of reindeer. Now, that takes us back to the historic figure, St. Nicholas. Nicholas of Myra, or Bari, in modern-day, what we now know as, as Turkey, uh, was born in the 3rd century, 270 AD. He was a bishop in Patara. He came from a wealthy family, but his parents died at an early age. Nicholas used his inheritance to help the poor and those in need. He changed the course of many lives through his generosity and his giving. In fact, as a bishop, he was widely known for his acts of, of kindness, and upon his, uh, his veneration, the, the Catholic Church has since recognized him as the patron saint of children and sailors and merchants. So you can see how this actual legend has translated into the modern iteration of Santa, Santa Claus. However, I can't talk about St. Nicholas without mentioning the legend of the Council of Nicaea. Uh, at, at this meeting of the church, a representative from Alexandria named Arius held that Jesus, while divine, was a created being, hence not eternal, which completely contradicts our beliefs of the Holy Trinity. Ultimately, the council and, and the Catholic church generally um, excommunicated Arius and and everybody else signed a, a creed affirming the church's stance on the Trinity, but not before St. Nicholas apparently slapped Arius in the face for his heretical views of the eternal Godhead. <laughs> so please understand the, the real Santa Claus. Understand the, the Catholic view of saints and Santa Claus's history of generosity and gift-giving, and, and make this man a part of your Christmas season every year. And, and how about we have some more heretical slaps this Christmas? Speaking of Santa, this brings us to number seven, which is the, the Christmas tradition of giving gifts. There are two major influences in this tradition, and, and one of them is the traditions of St. Nicholas. Again, the bishop's life was defined by his generosity, especially towards children, um, the Catholic Church has long since celebrated saints by feasting in their honor. Uh, St. Nicholas's feast day is celebrated on December 6th in the Western Church, where apparently the gift-giving began in his memory. But, of course, the other central influence is that of the Magi in the biblical story of the Incarnation. We'll talk more about them in just a moment, but... These wise men brought gifts as an act of worship to the newborn king. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Again, we'll talk more about in just a moment, but these are the main reasons why we give at Christmas, regardless of secular materialism and our capitalistic systems capitalizing on our religious observances. Next is number six in our final seemingly secular fact. Is there anything wrong with saying Happy Holidays or Xmas. The, the proclamation of Happy Holidays is really, it's a, it's a very American thing to say, but it's not as woke or as liberal as you would assume. The, the tension over this statement is that Christians recognize the month of December or from about mid-December onward as, is, as Advent or the Christmas season. So they they prefer Merry Christmas. That's what we prefer, as opposed to Happy Holidays. And, and many believe Happy Holidays to be almost atheist, atheistic or uh, sacrilegious. However, the word holiday has, has a double meaning. It, it can mean something like that of the British vacation or time away from work, but it also signifies its original meaning of, of the blended words holy days. In fact, between Thanksgiving and New Year's, there are several holidays, which is the reason for the, the generalized 
declaration, Happy Holidays. Uh, in that time frame, that the Jews celebrate Hanukkah. Uh, people that are actually from Africa celebrate Kwanzaa, some of them. Um, some people celebrate Boxing Day. Uh, I've already mentioned uh, St. Nicholas Day. There's also St. Stephen's Day, the first martyr of the church. Um, of course, we then have Christmas and we have New Year's. Um, so I say it's a very American thing to say Happy Holidays because we've held for 200 years that people can, can practice their various religions here in the United States of America. But as a side note, it only makes sense to, to wish your brothers and sisters in Christ a Merry Christmas. I mean, how would you respond to a, a, a Jewish person wishing you a Happy Hanukkah? Well, I can tell you, you, you wouldn't respond because that would never happen. A, a Jew would never wish a non-Jew Happy Hanukkah. Anyways, uh, don't, be don't be offended when someone says Happy Holidays. Now, there's another uh, seemingly secular designation that's been around for a long time, and that's the shortening um, the word Christmas to Xmas. I, I remember as a kid being taught that that was totally offensive to Christ and that this was another uh, atheist or, or anti-Christian attempt to secularize Chris, Christmas or quite literally to take Christ out of Christmas. However, the X represents the Greek letter chi, which is the, the first letter of, of the Greek word for Christ, Christos. So literally, Xmas is shorthand for Christmas, which has been used for centuries. In fact, there's something called the Christogram, otherwise known as the Chiro, which looks like the letters X and P combined together, which has been a Christian symbol dating all the way back to Emperor Constantine. Now, speaking of the Roman Empire, let's look at number five, which is Jesus's birthday. Jesus was born into, and, and the eventual Christian church was born into, the Pax Romana, a 200-year period of just world domination, military strength, cultural development, and economic stability, the likes of which uh, the world had never seen. Um, Rome's military was the strongest in the world under the leadership of Julius Caesar's nephew, Caesar Augustus. Uh, Rome's infrastructure was unmatched. Like, it, it, it was incredible. They, they saw the construction of roads, bridges, the, the aqueducts, again, like the world had never known, and which still exists today, leading to uh, newfound levels of trade and communication. Um, the fact that Augustus decrees a census in Luke chapter 2, and the entire world, <laughs> the entire world responds, demonstrates the power and the reach of, of the Roman Empire at this point in time. And contrary to our systems of dating and, and Anno Domini, or in Latin, the, the year of our Lord, Christ was not born in AD 1. That's what one would assume, but according to the details that, that Luke notes in his gospel account, Jesus was historically born somewhere close to 6 BC. And contrary to a shockingly popular opinion, Jesus' birthday is not December 25th. The first piece of evidence for the authentic time of Jesus' birth is Luke's description of the shepherds. Luke says in chapter 2, verse 8, that the shepherds were living in the fields, watching their flocks at night. Uh, though winters could be warmer than usual, it seems impossible to many historians that shepherds could live out in the fields any later than October, and that December would have been far too cold. But that's not even the most credible piece of evidence for Jesus' birth date. Our clearest understanding of the time of Jesus' birth is, is Luke's record of Zacharias in Luke chapter 1. Zacharias was a priest, and uh, the Jewish priesthood was organized into divisions. Luke tells us that Zacharias was a priest in the division of Abijah, and, and historically, his division would have served in the temple, 
twice a year for one week. First Chronicles tells us uh, this division of Abijah, which, uh, of which um, Zacharias was a part, served during the 10th week, the 10th week of the priestly cycle. The start of the 10th week on the Jewish calendar is the month of Sivan, which is about June 1st for us. Luke tells us that after those days, meaning the, the days of his service, his wife Elizabeth conceived. Okay, so Elizabeth becomes pregnant somewhere close to June 1st. Luke tells us that she becomes pregnant and she hid herself for five months. So that then puts us around November. Then in Luke 1.26, we're told, now in the sixth month, and that means the, the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, this is, according to the text, about the time when Jesus is conceived in Mary. So if you count forward nine months, that puts us in the Jewish month of Tishri, which is about mid-September. So Jesus was actually an autumnal baby, not a December baby. Some historians have pointed out that this is perfect because Jesus was conceived at the time of Hanukkah, the festival of lights, Jesus being the light of the world, and he was born at the time of Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and the beginning of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. It's all perfectly symbolic. This raises an obvious question, though, and that is, why do we celebrate and commemorate Jesus' birth on December 25th? Well, some historians think it was an attempt by the Christians to replace Saturnalia that I talked about earlier because it was a pagan celebration at the winter solstice, December 21st. But I honestly think December 25th came from uh, just bad dating by early Christian leaders who genuinely thought that Jesus was born on December 25th. Um, early Christians believed that Gabriel's annunciation, like when he declared this to Mary, happened on March 25th, which would place Jesus' birth nine months later on December 25th. Regardless, though, if Jesus was born in September or December, the whole point is the commemoration. So during this season, we're celebrating the miraculous event of Jesus' conception and incarnation. We're not really celebrating his birthday, per se. This is why it kind of it drives me crazy to see decorations that say, Happy Birthday, Jesus. Now, speaking of Jesus' birthday, um, number four expresses some important information about Mary and Joseph. This story is oftentimes told as if Jesus' soon-to-be parents were just desperately, frantically seeking a place, that they had just arrived in Bethlehem in the nick of time for Mary to give birth, as if Mary was like in labor on the donkey upon their arrival, um, and that they couldn't find a place to stay, etc. These things are simply not true, and we'll address even more of them as we go on, but Let's begin with this idea of their being hurried. Um, Luke 2.6 plainly says that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. While they were there. In other words, they were already staying there in Bethlehem when Mary gave birth. Why were they in Bethlehem? Well, because of that worldwide census I mentioned earlier. All of the Hebrew people were expected to go register in the census in the place of basically their, their tribal ancestry. So that meant for Joseph and Mary both, being of the lineage of King David, um, they had to travel to Bethlehem to register for the census. And we'll talk about the prophetic significance of that in just a moment. But another thing that I believe defies the hurried narrative of Mary and Joseph is the likely scandalous pregnancy of Mary in their actual hometown of Nazareth in Galilee. We're talking about the cultural norms of 2,000 years ago, and there's a young woman who is engaged to a young carpenter, and yet before, uh, before marriage, before they're married, she conceives a child. 
Now, I guarantee you that Mary and Joseph were the gossip talk of the town. So put yourself in their shoes. But then also put yourself in Joseph's shoes. He knows he's not the father of this child that his betrothed is carrying. It had to be embarrassing at points that his fiance was pregnant, and and yet he, he must have claimed a hundred times that that he wasn't the reason to to other people, um, and and he's just supposed to take Mary's word for it that uh, this was a, a baby that was uh, miraculously conceived of the Holy Spirit or or by God. In fact, Matthew shows us that that Joseph even considered uh, terminating their, their engagement in, in Matthew 1.19. However, Matthew also tells us that after the angel had spoken to Joseph, Joseph advanced the relationship and they were legally bound or they, they, they got married. So I think Joseph took the occasion of the census to get Mary out of Nazareth placing them in Bethlehem with with plenty of time to settle in before the arrival of the Son of God. I think another cool thing here is that Joseph waited to consummate the marriage until after Jesus was born. Matthew 1, 24-25 says, Joseph took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So this tells us two things. First, that Matthew was proving the virgin birth because the marriage was not consummated until after Jesus was born. And secondly, this contradicts the Roman Catholic doctrine that Mary was a perpetual virgin. So this now brings us to number three, which is where exactly was Jesus born? Well, much of the confusion for the exact location for Jesus' birth comes from one word in the text. And Luke tells us that when Mary gave birth, she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger. That's the key word. Because there was no room for them in the inn. That's Luke 2.7. The angel Uh, told the shepherds that they would find Jesus lying in a manger in verse 12. And then in verse 16, Luke says that the shepherds arrived and saw the baby as he lay in the manger. Luke is the only one who describes the birth in this great detail, but there's a reason for it, which you'll see in a moment. Matthew briefly uh, mentions Jesus' birth, but skips straight to the arrival of the Magi, which we'll discuss in a minute. Mark doesn't say anything, John doesn't say anything either, but Luke's gospel only mentions those two really specific details. He was was laid in a manger, and it was because there was, quote, no room for them in the inn. There's no mention of a stable, a cave, a barn, animals, nothing. So that means everything that you've heard beyond the manger is beyond the text, and, it, and it's a, a supposition which, which might be based on erroneous research. It could be based on false song lyrics. We'll see. Here's what we know. Scripture nowhere states that Jesus was born in a barn, a stable, a cave, or in the presence of animals. All of this is based on the mention of the manger, which is literally a feeding trough. The question is, Where would a first-century feeding trough be located? Okay? What did they look like? We'll come back to that in a moment. First, let's look at the second detail, that there was no room in the inn. The Greek word for inn is kataluma, which literally means a lodging place or a guest room. So when we read the word in, we think of something like a hotel or a lodging place that has a bunch of rooms, but a place like like that didn't really exist in, the, in that time and place. I mean, there were uh, pl- like little houses that people could pay to stay in overnight, but 
this lodging place literally was a guest room. The same word, kataluma, is, is used again by Luke in Luke twenty two eleven, when Jesus has tasked the disciples with finding a meeting room for the 13 of them to take the Passover meal, which would become the Last Supper. The place that they eventually find was an upstairs room in a house, a guest room, or what's called, again, by Luke, a kataluma. Uh, this room would eventually become known as the upper room because it served as a significant location for the apostles after Jesus passed. That shows us, without any study of the home construction history in Bethlehem's uh, ancient history, that, that a kataluma was mainly an upper room, an upstairs room, which guests could stay in. Of course, this could be for strangers, but it would especially be for visiting family and friends. So jumping back to Luke chapter 2, when Luke tells us there was no room for them in the inn, he's saying there was no room upstairs in whatever house Joseph and Mary visited. Now, hold that thought. E.F.F. Bishop once described how the houses in Bethlehem uh, had a, a lower section provided for the animals with mangers hollowed in stone. Remember that. Such a manger, being immovable, filled with crushed straw, would do duty for a cradle. So what he's describing is that these houses in Bethlehem had multiple levels, but were in fact, they were incredibly minimal. There, there was mainly a downstairs and an upstairs, and sometimes the upstairs was like a flat roof. So that upper room, the word kataluma, was especially reserved for guests, like it was the best place in the house. But the bottom floor was for the owners of the home, and did you catch, catch what else it was for? The animals. The animals. In fact, the, the history shows us that animals, being as important to uh, livelihood as they were, were brought inside at night for safety and warmth. I mean, just, just think about the, um, when Jesus, in John chapter 10, he, he, that, the famous scripture where he says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That whole passage of scripture there, Jesus is describing how the thief is trying to break in and steal the livestock, the sheep. Now listen, I know people here locally in Tennessee that, that have done this with cattle. So that means that the owners, the, the family would be inside on the main floor at night with their livestock. Bishop, uh, EFF Bishop, notes, uh, describe the feeding trough, or what we call the manger, as a stone, listen to this, a stone fixture on the main floor. Now listen, later in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 13, Jesus heals a woman on the Sabbath for which he's, he's ridiculed by the, the synagogue official. Jesus responds to him by saying, You hypocrites, do you not, does not each, each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall, that's the word, stall, and lead him away to water? When Jesus says that word, stall, in Luke 13, 15, it's the same exact word that's translated to manger. In Luke chapter 2. So the practice was for people to bring their animals in at night, and then they were back out of the house at dawn, even the priests on the Sabbath. This shows us that when Luke says, she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn, it means they had to stay downstairs because the upper room was occupied. And this is evidenced by Jesus being laid in a manger. So Jesus was, in fact, born in a house in Bethlehem. As we talked about earlier, the previous verse shows us that Mary and Joseph had been in Bethlehem 
for some time before Jesus was born. So the whole narrative of, you know, having to, uh, there's no room to stay anywhere. We got to resort to a, a barn or a cave is just unreasonable. But I'll give you three more reasons. It's implausible. First, Joseph and Mary are both descendants of King David. So just by the honor of his lineage, they would, they would have had a place to stay. Uh, secondly, the first chapter of Luke already mentioned that Mary's cousin Elizabeth and, and her husband Zacharias, they live in the hill country in a city of Judah. So if this was the case that they couldn't find a place to stay, they could have simply gone to Elizabeth and Zacharias's house. And then thirdly and finally, Mary was a pregnant woman. The cultural norms of that time included great respect and care for a woman with child. So Joseph and Mary were probably with extended family, and they were not alone when Jesus was born. One last thing I'll say about this. The gospel gospel writers are without question um, creating historical record of many of the events of Jesus' life. But they're also telling a true story about Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all telling Jesus' story, but they all have a specific intention in the way they tell the story. For example, it's clear from John's gospel account that, that he sought to prove the deity of Jesus, that he was, in fact, the Messiah. Well, consider the way Luke begins and finishes his telling of Jesus' story. He begins by saying that Jesus was laid in a manger, something carved out of rock, which no person had been laid, wrapped in cloth. And Luke's story ends with Jesus being laid in a tomb, carved out of rock, where no man had been laid, wrapped in burial cloth. Is that... (laughs) Is that not incredible? Okay, only two more incredible facts of the Incarnation before we get to our news for the week. Number two is concerning the Magi. You've probably heard that the number of the wise men was uh, far more than just three. In fact, that was debunked years ago. The theory for this misinterpretation was that these men came bearing gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These, there, there were three sorts of gifts, in other words. So, therefore, the assumption was there were three magi, or wise men, but here's the truth about these men. Matthew's the only person who talks about these men. When he introduces them, the Greek word used there is magos, which is a sorcerer, or like a magician, rooted in astrology. Nowhere will you find that these men were kings, They're actually acting in service to the king, King Herod, when they search for the prophesied Messiah. Yes, they are following a great star in the east, but Matthew 2, 7 through 8, shows us that they're they're practically commissioned by Herod to find the baby. Well, they find Jesus, they worship him, they give him those gifts, but then God warns them in a dream not to return to Herod. Matthew then shows us the the real Herodian purpose later in that chapter, saying, When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and, get this, he slew all of the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and, and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. This shows us that the Magi did not arrive until Jesus was older, and and older meaning somewhere around a year old. So unfortunately, there there was not a historic nativity scene with the shepherds and the magi and the animals and the parents all together for the infant Jesus. The only party missing there at the nativity would have been the magi. There is a presupposition in the text here that the magi had some level of of great understanding of of the Old Testament scriptures. They they come from the East, as it says, and ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
for we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. It's understood in much biblical scholarship that these men came from an area comparable to something like Jewish diaspora or that they were living among Jews who had been exiled from Judah and Israel centuries prior. Some scholars even believe these men were of Jewish heritage, but whatever their background, they were seeking the newborn king. Numerically, there was likely far more than three magi. They would have uh, traveled in a much larger group. I heard one commentator suggest that there could be a hundred of these magi traveling together, but it's definitely not three people carrying such priceless gifts across the desert. And speaking of the gifts, the first gift mentioned is gold. Gold is obviously one of the most precious metals on the earth, and it's most often associated with royalty. So Jesus being the newborn king and the Messiah, he was gifted gold at his birth. The second gift is frankincense. This is an aromatic, uh, an aromatic used in, in incense and perfumes. And, and if you know your Old Testament tabernacle history, you know that the burning of frankincense was a part of God's specific instructions for burning incense on the altar. It symbolized uh, the prayers and, and even holiness uh, for the Israelites. But I think it has a priestly connection to Christ, who is our eternal high priest. And finally, the third gift was myrrh, which is another aromatic. This one, however, was used as an embalming oil. So this final gift is highly foreshadowing of the death of the Savior. In fact, John tells us that after Jesus died and was buried, that Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, like John 3.16, also came bringing a mixture of, get this, myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial customs of the Jews. That was John 19, 39 through 40. So did the Magi know how incredibly symbolic and practically prophetic their gifts were? Well, who knows? But speaking of prophecy, our final fact and, and number one on the list, speaking of the, the miraculous incarnation, are, are the many prophecies that the birth of Jesus fulfilled. This is what astounds me about religious Jews who are, are seemingly well-read and well-studied and faithful to their, their synagogue in the Old Testament scriptures. In Jesus' entire life and ministry, he fulfilled over 300, 300 Messianic prophecies. The odds of anyone accomplishing that, fulfilling hundreds of prophecies spoken over thousands of years in one lifetime, are astronomically impossible. Only the true Messiah and Son of God could, could fulfill them. And, and even in his birth alone, numerous prophecies were fulfilled. Proof Just in his birth, it's proof enough of his messianic identity. I mean, here's just a short list for you. Genesis 3.15 told us the Messiah would be born of a woman. Genesis 22.18 told us he would be a descendant of Abraham, that he would be Jewish. Genesis 26.1-5 continues this prophecy saying that the Messiah would come from Isaac. Genesis 28.13-14 keeps it going, saying that he would be a descendant of Jacob. Genesis 49.10 says he would come from Judah. Isaiah chapter 11 says the, the Messiah would come from Jesse, and he would also be a descendant of David. Genesis 49 also tells us that he would appear after a succession of rulers from the tribe of Judah. Daniel 9, 25-26 says he would appear after, after the rebuilding of Jerusalem, after Babylonian destruction, and before the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. So with, within that time frame. Micah 5, 2 says that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 7, 13 through 14 shows us that 
he would be born of a virgin and that he would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 4, told us that he would be preceded by a forerunner or a messenger, which was his cousin, John the Baptist. Malachi also speaks of this in Malachi 3, 1, saying that this messenger would prepare the way for the Lord. So maybe, just maybe, the Magi knew these prophecies and more, but we can only speculate. So there are your top 10 incredible truths of the Incarnation. Now, let's get to the news feed. Our top story today is, of course, that the Colorado State Supreme Court issued a ruling that essentially bans President Trump from appearing on any election ballots in the state. Here's what the ruling said. A majority of the court holds that President Trump is disqualified from holding the office of president under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution. Because he is disqualified, it would be a wrongful act under the election code for the Colorado Secretary of State to list him as a candidate on the presidential primary ballot. Now, I talked about this very thing months ago because other politicians at the national level have cited the same constitutional basis, albeit a weak one, for disqualifying President Trump for running for office again. So, let's quickly take a look at Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Listen to the offices listed or to whom this section applies. It reads the following. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, against the United States, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. There's a few things to take away from this text, but... It must first be restated that this was the basis for the Colorado Supreme Court uh, ruling to, to ban Trump from the ballot. Now, what offices do you see missing from that constitutional text? President and vice president. Go back and read it again. They, they mention U.S. senators and representatives, electors, uh, civil and, and military officers, uh, state legislators, meaning state senators and representatives, uh, state-level executives, and state-level judicial officers, meaning like judges and justices, etc. That's it. The Supreme Court of the United States is the only federal justice uh, or, or branch mentioned in the Constitution. But even they are not mentioned here. But neither are president and vice president. And, and section 3 of Amendment 14 was simply creating legal precedent for Congress, Congress to remove a person from government or disallow them from government who were attempting to usurp or overthrow or intentionally destroy the United States. That's why it ends with the line, Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each House, meaning the House and the Senate, remove such disability. So, number one, Trump is exempt from this because he was president and he's running again for president. Number two, this was intended to be a congressional act, not some random Supreme Court in Colorado. And number three, this section of the 14th Amendment was ratified 
on July 9th, 1868. Does anybody know what had just taken place before this was ratified? That's right, the, the Civil War. So this, this section ensured that individuals who had fulfilled the, the listed offices there, but then engaged in rebellion against the United States, you know, the, the Confederacy and the United States, these people would face consequences concerning their eligibility for public office. But again, this was a legal precedent. So the purpose was to dissuade those who might be tempted to betray their oath and participate in armed conflict against the United States. Therefore, if, if you believe in originality, like determining what was the purpose and intent of, of the writers of, of this, this section of the Constitution, this doesn't apply to President Trump in the least. Any person who considers Trump's actual words and actions uh, leading up to and, and, and on January 6th would not consider his actions to be intent on betraying the United States. They wouldn't consider his, his motives hell-bent on undermining the United States of America. However, you could say the current president is doing so, and yet here's what he had to say in reaction to the ruling. self-evident. You saw it all. Now, whether the 14th Amendment applies, I'll let the court make that decision. But he certainly supported an insurrection. No question about it. None. Zero. And uh, he seems to be doubling down on about everything. Anyway, I've got to go do this. Well, he's right about one thing. This will surely, surely reach the federal Supreme Court. And if some little guy like me can discern the, the simple section and, and the history of the U.S. Constitution, surely they can as well, being experts and all. Now, the real question is, does this even matter? And the answer is, it, it might matter. Well, while it's true that the GOP is a, is a private organization and, and they don't even have to conduct a primary, if other states follow Colorado's example, a federal ruling on the matter will be beneficial. I've also heard um, rumors that the GOP in Colorado are going to simply ignore the court's ruling on the issue and just put Trump on the ballot anyway. And there, once again, the federal Supreme Court will can be very helpful. It also goes without saying that Trump was never charged with insurrection, so he at least has, has that going for him in, in all this debate. Um, but speaking of trying to take somebody out, on Black Friday last month, the officer who was charged and imprisoned for the death and murder of George Floyd, Officer Derek Chauvin, was stabbed 22 times, 22 times in prison. And, you know, just as the medical examiner's report was coming out showing that the lethal amount of drugs in Floyd's system. I've mentioned this several times on the show, but, but Derek Chauvin did not murder George Floyd. He didn't murder him. In, in all the camera footage that were shown, they leave out the most critical part where they've escorted Floyd to the cruiser, and as they're putting him in the back seat, he's already saying, I can't breathe. I, I can't breathe. And so that, that's the whole reason why they remove him from the vehicle, at which point he begins expressing even more that he can't breathe. So he starts fighting against them, resisting them, and not listening to anything, and that's why he's taken to the ground in handcuffs, as would be the case with anybody. Now, 
why would he ever say that he couldn't breathe? Did he have asthma? Was he just claustrophobic in tight spaces like a, like a police cruiser? Was he suffering from a bad case of summertime pneumonia? No. Floyd had literally a deadly amount of fentanyl in his bloodstream. And every single person who overdoses from fentanyl experiences the same thing. Suppression of the respiratory system. In other words, Floyd killed himself. He suffocated himself to death. And Derek Chauvin just happened to be there. But with millions and millions of racially woke dollars on the line and racist agendas and groups, we can't allow this narrative to be destroyed. So, he's unironically stabbed 22 times while he's serving his 22-year sentence on Black Friday. Fortunately, he was rushed to the, uh, to, to, into emergency surgery, and he has survived, but the news reporting on this is absolutely abysmal. And that's why you've heard it here. So Chauvin, fortunately, did not die, but there's someone else in the news who did. His name is Hassan Bitmez, a, a Turkish lawmaker who last week was giving a speech condemning the, the ruling party in Turkey and their, their response to the Israel-Hamas conflict, meaning he was criticizing uh, President Erdogan's or Erdogan's uh, party. Uh, during the speech, he has this sign pinned up which says, Murderer Israel, Collaborator AKP, the collaborator uh, being the ruling party in Turkey. Um, at the end of the speech, Bitmez proclaims that Israel would, would not be able to escape the wrath of Allah, but then immediately collapses on the floor from a heart attack. Watch this. Allah'ın gazabından kurtulamayacaksınız. Hepinizi saygıyla selamlıyorum. The best comment that I saw on that video was, the rebuttal from above was astoundingly swift. <laughs> and, and indeed it was because uh, Bitmez died in the hospital shortly after. So it looks like he wasn't able to escape the wrath of the real God. Whoops. And finally, speaking of the wrath of God, you've probably heard about the satanic altar that the Church of Satan set up in the Iowa State Capitol building, but I am happy to report that a Christian Navy veteran destroyed it with his bare hands. Uh, Maraid Elordi over at the Daily Wire has the story. She writes, Michael Cassidy, 35, was arrested after allegedly beheading a Baphomet statue put up last week by the Satanic Temple of Iowa. He's been charged with fourth-degree criminal mischief. Coincidentally, our last episode talked all about Satanism and the increasing infatuation that our culture has with the devil. This was a perfect example of what I was talking about. It says Cassidy, a former Navy pilot who now works as a flight instructor and was previously a Mississippi congressional candidate, explained to the Republic Sentinel why he decided to destroy the satanic display. He said, I saw this blasphemous statue and was outraged. My conscience is held captive to the word of God, not to bureaucratic decree, and so I acted. He's talking about the justification for such an obviously evil thing. Rhinos uh, will say that we have to have, we, we have to have the, the satanic display because it's religious equality. But anybody with a brainstem knows that religious freedom does not mean that anybody can do anything, just as freedom of speech doesn't mean anyone can say anything. Listen to me. This is an important lesson. Liberty is best enjoyed within boundaries. That means the freest people are not those who can just do whatever they want. They are those who enjoy themselves within the confines of statutes and rules. This is true in society. This is true in spirituality. 
That's why it's, it's absolutely abundantly necessary that we come back to being a, a nation of, of law and order because that is where f- real freedom lies. Cassidy also said, The world may tell Christians to submissively accept the legitimization of Satan, but none of the founders would have considered government sanction of satanic altars inside Capitol buildings as protected by the First Amendment. Anti-Christian values have steadily been mainstreamed more and more in recent decades, and Christians have largely acted like the proverbial frog in the boiling pot of water. A a million amens to that, Mr. Cassidy. Um, We all need to step up like this honorable Navy veteran who literally decapitated this satanic statue and threw its head in the trash can. After being charged, Cassidy posted a Bible verse to social media on Thursday evening. It said, 1 Peter 5, 8, King James Version, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Cassidy posted on X. Well, Merry Christmas to Mr. Cassidy, and Merry Christmas to, to all of you. We'll be back on January 11th, so that's going to do it for me in 2023. Now go and be the salt and light you were meant to be, and we'll see you next time on We The Free.